Hey everybody, today on this episode of Unbeatable, you get a chance to meet Major General Greg Mad Martin Martin, a guy who was wildly successful in almost everything that he ever did from academics to athletics and obviously really, really talented in the military or he would not have made it to this level. I got a chance to meet him a few weeks ago and we had a very raw, very honest conversation about a vulnerability, about a mental health challenge that he has, that he's just been really open, really bold about. And I can't wait for you to hear this from his own lips. So here it is, season two, episode number two of Unbeatable with Major General Greg Madmart. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. General Martin, thank you so much for being with us. You're the second guest on season two of Unbeatable. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's going to be really hard for me not to slip back into proper protocol and military etiquette and refer to you as general this whole interview. But if you'll permit me, I'd just like to be able to call you by your first name, if that's all right. That's perfect. So I was going to use the air quotes Mad Martin and just refer to you as Mad Martin during this whole interview, since that's what you're soldiers affectionately recur, refer to you as, but I'm just going to go by by Greg, if that's okay. That's okay. Mad Martin's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always do this every time I'm talking to a warrior, doesn't matter what country they come from. Before we even go into your interview, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for fighting for the cause of freedom. Thanks for all that you've done for this country. Well, it's really my uh, honor, privilege to have served. And I also thank you and honor you for your great service. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about being voted most likely to succeed because I was pretty much the opposite of that in high school. So tell me what it was like when you were in high school and really being wildly successful at just about everything back in the early to mid 70s. Um, tell me a little bit about high school and what prompted you to go to the University of Maine after graduating. So I grew up in a town called Holbrook, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And it was like a tailor-made town for the baby boom generation. Just right. loads, lots and lots of kids, because most of the people who lived in the town were World War II veterans who, when they came home, they got the GI bill and the, and the VA housing mm -hmm. loans. And so this town just sprouted up out in the country. And so everybody's, you know, dad was a World War II vet. And so there, we all had these common bonds and sports were huge. It was just a fun, happy time yeah. to grow up in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, you as far are... Well, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say you are a son of the great generation, right? Your father served during World War II. Is that correct? That's correct. So he he was an enlisted uh, sailor in World War II, and you know that um, that really gave me kind of a propensity to serve in the military. That my yeah. dad had been in the military. My mother had two brothers who were career coast guardsmen, and you know everything wow. came pretty easy to me. I mean, I was a good student without studying. I was a really successful athlete and, you know, I, I worked hard and I, you know, was determined and hustled, but, you know, I, 
everything seemed to go my way. And, and then the same with leadership. And so I, I actually wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy coming out of high school, you know, and follow in the footsteps of my two uncles. But I didn't get in because of um, my, my eyesight was below the level. So I ended up going really? to the University of Maine and I went there and uh, it was just taking this. I was taking an engineering curriculum and there was during the freshman orientation, there were they had a night for all the different clubs and activities and extracurricular. And there was a club called the Ranger Club. And they did whitewater rafting, mountain climbing, rappelling, yeah. all the all the hua stuff. And I said, "Okay, nice. that's what I want to do. I want to be in the Ranger Club." And they said, "Okay, you can join, but the only thing is you have to join Army ROTC in order to be in it." So that was a little recruiting tool that the ROTC had. So I said, "Okay." So I signed up for ROTC, was in the Ranger Club, and then that ended up leading me to West Point, applying and getting into West Point and going in the Army. Yeah, fascinating transition because not a lot of people go from an Army ROTC program to West Point. What prompted you to look into West Point when you were already uh, at the University of Maine and already in college? So I was really driven to get the best college education I could for the best price. And you cannot beat the service academy. You can't beat the price, right? And, you know, so I, I was not a scholarship ROTC person. I just took it as an elective. Mm -hmm. So, and I didn't have, you know, any money. And, you know, I'm not from a wealthy family. So I needed a way to pay for college. And I liked Army ROTC. So I had a positive view of the Army. Uh, West Point was a service academy, 100% um, mm -hmm. scholarship. So that's really what what led me to it. And I and I had a family that encouraged me to do that because of their yeah. you know military tradition. Um, for the listeners, I have had a chance to speak at colleges and universities all over America. Actually, a few of them around the world. But I've also been to the U.S. military academies to Annapolis, to Colorado Springs, and to to West Point, the Army, the Navy slash Marine Corps, and the Air Forces academies. And I will tell you, the students there are significantly different than the other colleges and universities. In fact, I taught at the college and university level for a few years as an enlisted guy in ROTC. I absolutely loved it. But what I saw from the students of the service academies just blew me away by how amazing they are. And when you're in West Point, New York, at the U.S. Military Academy, you're around some pretty impressive people um, from uh, all walks of life. But smart, strong, fast, competent. They've got it all going on, right? Yeah, it's a really highly talented group of people for all of the academies. Um, it, it's really some of the best people in our American society. Yeah. I bring that up because you're doing pretty well in high school. Obviously, you're a pretty good student or you wouldn't have been able to get into the University of Maine, let alone West Point. But I don't want people to think, well, you just have talent dripping out of your ears. And chances are you do, Greg. But you've already said during this interview that you worked hard and no one gets into college, let alone into this really elite, very prestigious, let's face it, highly difficult to get an appointment to one of the service academies. Nobody gets in without a lot of hard work. Is that accurate? Totally true. In fact, um, when I went in high school, I got good grades without working hard. 
um, because it was just not that challenging. And so I didn't develop good study habits. And when I went to the University of Maine and enrolled in a challenging engineering curriculum at a big state university, I fell flat on my face. I didn't have good study habits. I wasn't disciplined in my approach to academics. I was a disciplined athlete, but not student. And I I Mm -hmm. suddenly, before I knew it, within a month or two, I had almost all Fs in my my freshman year at the University of Maine. The only class passing was ROTC, where I had a B. And so I really started in a big hole academically. And when I applied to the service academy, to West Point, I actually applied to all the academies, but um, the only one that took me was West Point. But Uh when they looked at my high school record, they said, wow, you're exactly what we're looking for. You have all the talents we want. But, you know, why have you done so horribly at University of Maine? We're not going to accept you, but we'll give you a chance. We'll see how you do second semester. They said, take a curriculum that matches the same courses that you would take at West Point and then give us your grades from the second semester. So I did. And I worked really hard. I, I got, you know, very disciplined study habits. Um, my Christian faith really took off. Yeah. So the combination of my faith, um, my discipline, my hard work, my desire all came together. And I think the Holy Spirit had a lot to do with it. I ended up getting all A's and B's the second semester at Maine. And West Point wow. looked at my record and they said, okay, this guy was in high school, stellar athlete, stellar leader, you know, really good student. And now he's shown that he can do college level work at the, you know, A, B level. And they accepted me. Yeah, you're describing what would have been my natural path. If I, I never cracked a book when I was in high school, and then it, I went straight to the army. Had I gone to college, it would have been an absolute disaster. But like you and many other people, the army gave me some discipline. So when I finally did go do a undergraduate and postgraduate degree, I had the the study the discipline that goes along with the study habits to to finish those degrees it would have been a train wreck if i would have went straight into college right out of high school um so at some point you decide hey i like this army thing and i'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening to this while you're driving What was it that prompted you to say, man, I think I'd like to do this for a career? Because a lot of people give it a few years, even some great officers and leaders give it a couple of years and then they move on to another career. What caused you to say, I really like uh, being a soldier and I think I want to spend a career doing it? Yeah, it really, um, I got hooked in my first assignment after graduating from West Point. So West Point was terrific. I mean, I got a great education, met fantastic people, was in the best physical condition of my life. I was having fun. You know, my, I, I was, you know, the nickname at West Point was the wild man. And uh, yeah. so I was living life to the fullest. And my goal was to do my five-year initial commitment and then go get a job as a civilian. And, you know, five years army service, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I've done my duty as an American. I feel good about myself and what I've done, but I got out in the army and uh, first I got to go to the engineering uh, combat engineer basic course, got to go to airborne school, 
uh, got to go to Northern Warfare School up in Alaska, and then nice. volunteered for and got into Ranger School. And Ranger School was like a life experience that, you know, I'm so glad yeah. I went. I mean, it was brutally hard, but I'm really yeah. thankful I went. And then I went to my first platoon over in Germany, you know, in, tra- in charge of 30 combat engineers. We had a real defensive mission against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And I quickly just immersed myself in the job of platoon leader, you know, learned the job, learned the tactics, really listened to my NCOs, um, found out that a huge part of my job, in addition to leading us for a wartime mission, was taking care of all the problems that were inherent in the army system. So soldiers not getting their pay, not getting their promotions on time, health problems, you know, family problems, their kids not getting proper health care, and on and on. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, Jeff. And so I said, wow, this is a chance not only to serve my country and to be a soldier and a leader, but I'm really doing the Lord's work here, um, you know, loving my soldiers, you know, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. If I was a private or a spec four and I didn't get promoted or didn't get my pay, I'd sure want my leader to help me get right. those things. And so I just threw myself into taking care of those troops and their families. And I found it to be extremely rewarding. And, you know, a soldier can't go into the battalion headquarters and say, I need to get promoted. But a lieutenant right. has real power. I mean, a lieutenant can yeah. walk in and, and if, you know, and you don't, be demanding and bully people and try to boss people around. But you can go in and just talk to the NCOs in the battalion um, headquarters and say, hey, look, you know, I got a soldier who hasn't gotten paid in two months or hasn't gotten their promotion for four months. What can you do? Can you can you help me out here? And and then the soldiers know when they see that you care about them, they'll do anything for you. Anything. And this was a rough, tough group of dirty, mean troops. Uh, a lot of Vietnam yeah. veterans. Um, they drank more black coffee than anybody I ever knew. I mean, every other word was an F-bomb or some other curse. Yeah. Um, but they worked their butts off. And, you yeah. know, I don't know how the Cold War in Germany would have turned out. You know, we thought the Russians would overwhelm us. But we we had a pact that we would go down fighting. And, you know, we had a team. Right combat engineer mission, putting in obstacles and protecting, um, you know, the, the the tanks and the artillery and the infantry and, you know, helping them to move. And so, I mean, it's a down and dirty, ugly job to have, kind of like being an interior lineman on the yeah. football field. And uh, and these guys were great. I mean, if, if we, we, we probably would have all gotten killed, but we would have killed a bunch of Russians along the way. Yeah. And so yeah. that's when I got hooked. I said, this is the greatest job in the world. I love this. And it was way different than West Point with, you know, the spit and polish and everything dress Mm -hmm. right dress. I mean, this was the real army. I mean, it was it was dirty and hard and challenging and exciting and fun. And uh, and I just took off from there and, you know, was offered the opportunity for company command, which was, you know, even better and then graduate school and so forth. And I just, I, yeah. I stayed in for a lifetime. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because you joined the Army several years before I did. But when I was in the Army, the sergeants that I served under all joined after Vietnam. And they all said to me, Jeff, the Army of today is very different than the guys and gals that I joined up with because the post-Vietnam era of the military, it was just, and it was it was bad. It was rough. And for the guys and gals that served during that period, they said, man, it was, it, it was, there was a lot of problems in the military. And you joined in during that post Vietnam era with when the military had a lot of problems. Um, I want to point out something that you just said though, to the listener, because if you really want to make an impact, just follow in Greg's footsteps here. He got a little bit of authority and power that goes along with being a commissioned officer and a leader in the U.S. Army. And instead of using that authority and power to make himself look good or make life better for himself, what I just wrote down while you were talking is you used your power and your authority to take care of engineers and to take care of soldiers. And when you do that and you keep doing that, they're going to take care of you because they know you're going to take care of them. And that's when real beautiful things start to happen not just in the military, but in every walk of life. Amen. Um, in, in what you really talk to, the, the term servant leadership, which I know you're familiar yeah. with, where mm -hmm. you, know, you take your authority, your power, and you use it not for yourself, but for others, to empower others for the good of the organization, for the advancement of the mission. And one of the things that I discovered very, very early on as an Army officer, you know, right away as a second lieutenant platoon leader, is that there was a total harmony between my Christian values and my army values. So the, the, the virtues that, you know, Christ talked about, you know, to, to um, love others as you love yourself, and the virtues that the army talks about, character, integrity, uh, you know, honesty, selflessness, loyalty, you know, all those basic army values, they go mm -hmm. hand in hand together. And so I found that, you know, being a, a, a Christian and being an army officer, they empowered and strengthened each other because as an officer, I got to really live out my Christian faith in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, you spent a lot of time in the army. How many years did you serve before you retired? I had four years at West Point and then 36 years of commissioned officer time. So really a total of 40. <laughs> 40 years in the military. Um, you, uh, we're going to get to the point where you deploy as a brigade commander to Afghan, or I mean to Iraq and take part in the push to go um, free Baghdad in, in the Iraqi war. I just want the listener to hear, you're talking to a guy who has served for very, very few people in America ever spend that much time in the military um, and retire at the rank of major general. If you're not familiar with the U.S. rank structure, that means a two-star general um, and wildly successful. But you just mentioned something that I think needs a little bit more explanation. There are lots of people out there that don't serve in the military. They have some degree of Christian faith like you and I do. And for them, they struggle with, wait a second, how can you be a warrior? How can you be in the military and have a solid Christian faith at the same time? And what I just heard you say was 
for you, those two uh, things didn't conflict with one another. They actually worked together. Can you explain that some more? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, on my website, there's a paper I wrote when I was a, a student at the Army War College called Jesus, the Strategic Leader. And it basically analyzes Jesus Christ as a leader. And I sort of dissect and examine all the different dimensions and aspects of his leadership. And then I explain it and come up with like a blueprint or a model for how to mm -hmm. lead. And, um, and that's not a unique idea. There are some, there are other books written on that, but it's, it's a, I think it's a good solid paper that became the blueprint for my own leadership. Um, you know, when, when you're a leader, you, you have to figure out what your purpose is. You, you have to help come up with a mission you have to mm -hmm. figure out a strategy. You need to understand and care for your people. You need to care for and replenish yourself. You need to understand what it is you're doing and why you're doing it and why you believe in it. You need to be selfless to put others ahead of you. Um, you need to be a clear communicator. Uh, so all of these things that Jesus did very extremely well, obviously, um, are things that you also have to do as an army leader or a military leader right. or a business leader or a government. Yeah. And so I, I think that um, that model served me well. And, and the main focus is, you know, do your best at whatever you do, you know, Colossians 3.23, whatever you mm -hmm. do, do it with all your heart. Um, you know, loving others as you as you love yourself, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. In, in other words, being a selfless, caring leader who puts others in front of you. Um, and then I think having a, a, a demeanor of being joyful, cheerful, right. an attitude of gratitude, loving, full of love and enthusiasm. I think that those things which are harmonious with being a Christian um, – you know, just come out naturally. Um, one of yeah. the great power verses to me is of uh, First Thessalonians uh, five sixteen to eighteen. Be joyful always. Pray continuously. Give thanks mm -hmm. in all circumstances. And those are things that you can do. Be joyful. Just like you know, when you when right. you show up in the morning with the soldiers at PT, if it's cold and raining, be cheerful. Be joyful. Um, right you know, pray continuously. That's something you can do inside of your mm -hmm. own mind and your own spirit. And then giving thanks is a choice we have to be thankful and have an attitude of gratitude. And if you have that, it activates joy. It's contagious. Yeah. Everybody feeds off of it. And you can just elevate the performance and attitude of an entire unit. Yeah. I hope people that are listening just heard your list of qualities that it takes to be a good leader. And if you have this genuine Christian faith, that should influence the way that you lead. And the reason why I say I hope everybody heard that list is because there are a lot of people out there that have this inclination that, I, hey, I think I want to lead. And I hope that you're hearing from Greg right now. Leadership is not for the faint of heart. This is hard work because you're dealing with people and ultimately you're using as a servant the authority and the power that you have to make other people's lives better, not necessarily to make your life better. And that's why some people just aren't cut out to lead. 
But those that lead with those kind of the kind of principles that you just mentioned, those are the guys and gals, Greg, that I would follow to their death. I would follow them to my death because of the kind of people that they are. And I know um, they would not steer me wrong. You know, Jeff, and one of the other things about being an authentic leader, you know, in really putting your Christian faith on the line is you have to be ready to get fired every single day. You, you have to be yep. ready to get, you know, uh, lose your rank, lose your pay, get get out of a job, because you always have to make these decisions about, you know, how much do I stick up for my people, uh, even when they're wrong, and, and, and fight for them when it could and, and possibly, you know, hurt me, and that I could take, I would have to be the fall guy to take care of and protect my soldiers or to stand up for a principle that I'm not going to cave in on. And, and so you're right. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, there's a lot of things can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you have that kind of loyalty, because you have built that kind of um, serve, you've served the soldiers that you, that you led that well, they're going to start to, to get, uh, be loyal to you. And that's when you can really accomplish some pretty incredible things as a commander, um, especially on the battlefield. So um, let's talk about a little bit of your combat experience. Um, we're going to get to Iraq in just a second, but you joined the Army, as I did, in the midst of the Cold War when 100% of the U.S. military was focused on fighting and defeating the communists, right, and and Russia. And that was that was most of my first few years in the, in the military, which seems like 100 years ago now. Um, and the Cold War era army is very different than what it has been over the last 20 years with the persistent conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. But talk about leading men, that men and women, warriors, um, and leading them in some tough and even dangerous situations in combat. Well, pretty much everything we've been talking about still applies. Um, the conditions for leadership in, in combat were, for me, really set before we ever deployed. It was, you know, what is my leadership philosophy, which, you know, I was really very Christian based. Um, mm -hmm. So what was my philosophy? Does everybody understand who we are, what we're going to try to do, how we take care of each other, how we communicate? Does everybody understand that? And so when I was in, when we were in Germany before deploying to the Middle East, you know, I made sure my, the, that my message got out that all the subordinate leaders, you know, the battalion commanders, company commanders, platoon leaders, et cetera, all understood it, they bought into it, and that it was disseminated all the way down to the tip of the spear where, you know, the, the actual soldiers, the trigger pullers mm -hmm. all were. Um, and then I went out and I visited and, you know, talked to people and inspected. And so we had lots of training that we did. Um, you know, training exercises. And I did offsite leadership seminars. And, you know, I did things like I'd bring all the battalion commanders together and we'd spend mm -hmm. like three days together and we'd do PT and play sports and we'd talk about stuff and we'd go on hikes. And, you know, we really bonded with, you know, those those leaders. And then I did the same thing with company commanders. Um, and then the same, you know, I would do it with platoon leaders. And um, and then we did the same thing up, up the chain of command with Fifth Corps, which is the three-star command. Mm -hmm. And so we really were a very cohesive team of teams 
that knew what we were doing. We knew each other. We trusted each other. We believed in the in the mission. Um, we were really a band of brothers and sisters. And so by the time we deployed, you know, which was in December, January of 2002, 2003, I mean, we were very well trained. Um, we were really mm-hmm. cohesive. We trusted each other. We believed in each other. So we got down to Kuwait and then, you know, we knew the war would start, you know, relatively soon within a, a couple months. And we trained even more in the desert, the, the northern part of Kuwait. You know, we did all kinds of training exercises, all sorts of mm-hmm. rehearsals, synchroni- synchronizing um, all the different movements and, and phases of the operation. And the engineers had a huge role yeah. um, in in all aspects of the, of the of the of the campaign. And then when we finally knew we were going to attack, and we moved out of these camps, these desert camps, we moved into our attack positions. Um, you know, I made sure I got around and circulated around and yeah. visited every battalion, every company, every platoon, and talked to the soldiers, see how they were doing. It was interesting. I had an embedded reporter with me, and, you know, it was just days before the attack. And he said, hey, uh, Colonel Martin, you don't seem like you're afraid of anything. Like, you seem like Superman. Like, you're just like, you know, seem like you're on cloud nine. You're so motivated. Do you think any of your soldiers are scared? And it was like, bam, I said, wow, yeah. I never even thought about that. I never, because as, as in my role, I was so busy and so yeah. uh, full of adrenaline that I didn't even think that anybody could be scared. And I said, that's mm-hmm. such a great point. And so then I would, I, I told everybody, I said, hey, go talk to every one of your soldiers, look them in the eye and, you know, you know, tell them, hey, if you're scared, it's okay. I, tell them you're scared yeah. too. And that, you know, yeah. but, but we have to do our job. We have to do our duty. And, you know, you have to put fear beside. And courage is really moving forward in the oh, yeah. face of fear. So even though you're afraid, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But courage is you're going to go forward and do your job anyway. Um, and so then we got the mission to attack. We, we knew it. And the night, the plan was the night before the attack, I actually took a relatively small uh, group of engineers and we cut the lanes, the, these big anti-tank yeah. uh, berms yeah. and, and filled the ditches. And we built these combat trails through the demilitarized zone uh, mm-hmm. between Iraq and Kuwait so that at six in the morning, uh, you know, the fifth Corps, hundred thousand right. launched this invasion through the eight attack lanes. So I actually got to do that the night before it was, that was pretty interesting because it was pitch black. We were confident had taken out all of the Iraqi um, uh, border guards and, you know, observation posts and that anybody who was out there that we had, you know, taken care of and they weren't there anymore. And, uh, but it was still, it was dark. Um, We had the Kuwaiti civilian engineers helping us. Uh, because they wanted to, that was their contribution to the yeah. effort, and it was it was really incredible to be out in front of the artillery and the rocket missile barrages that we unleashed into Iraq, and to have these you know missiles shooting over our heads was yeah. whoa. I mean, that was like I, that was I had never had that experience before. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. salvos of hundreds and hundreds of rockets and missiles shooting you know, miles deep into Iraq. That was, Mm -hmm. that was wild. And then, um, you know, we, our assault across the border went 
we we expected enemy engagement, but they had largely either been killed or withdrawn before we attacked. And so the first time we actually hit enemy contact, at least, you know, Fifth Corps, was up at Talil Air Base near um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Talil. It's, it's, uh, and, and that was a, you know, a pretty significant battle for that, for that air yeah. base. And so we, we captured the air base, um, cleared it of all the rubble and debris and mines and booby traps. And we had airplanes. The Air Force was landing planes within 12 hours. And then we pushed on up the, the Euphrates River Valley through. And there was heavy, heavy fighting in oh, yeah. uh, Nasiriya, yeah. um, Samoa, Najaf. The Saddam Fedayeen attacked us into the mm-hmm. flank of Fifth Corps. And they pushed us inland to the west. And the engineers built a 150-kilometer gravel road that could carry tanks all the way to wow. the off. And we built the thing in, you know, in less than a week. And and then, yeah. through, you know, through the Karbala Gap, you know, river crossing south of Baghdad, and then on into Baghdad, and then capturing the um, uh, the the air the Baghdad airport, Saddam International yeah. Airport. And and you know that was a huge battle at the airport. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people fought and died on Iraqi yeah. and Americans. And um, so and then, you know, Baghdad fell and then we had this um, really kind of strange period of about a month that it was right. it, it wasn't war, but it wasn't peace, but it wasn't all yeah. out war. And then three big decisions came, you know, started. They came to bear. Number one, we didn't have enough troops to secure the peace. Yeah. We had I mean, we committed enough forces to Iraq to um, take down the regime and and get rid of Saddam Hussein. But once he was gone, we did not have the forces to secure the borders, to secure the cities, to to um, to stop the inflow of terrorists and guerrilla fighters. We just didn't. I mean, that's a fact. Um, yeah. The second thing, our government made a decision to um, to uh, disband the Iraqi army. And that here's the problem with that. Um, we made a deal with those guys before the yeah. of hostilities in most of the regular army of Iraq, um, not the Saddam fanatics and loyalists, but the mm-hmm. regular army. We said, look, if you put if you go home and don't fight us, we'll reemploy you after the war to secure your right. And they said, yes. I mean, we made it yeah. and then we broke it. And then the yeah. third thing is we did deep debathification. If you were an Iraqi citizen under yeah. In order to have a job or to do anything, you had to join the Ba'ath Party. You had to. And so then we said, anybody who was ever a member of the Ba'ath Party, even if you were a garbage man, a school teacher, a a government administrator, you could no longer be employed under the new system. And so you just you basically just disenfranchised millions of Iraqis. So we basically created the conditions for the guerrilla war that swallowed us for the next decade. And it the place went crazy. I mean, you had all these Iraqi soldiers who are r- really mad now because they got, you know, they lost their job. You had right. the whole country was an ammo dump, a weapons cache. There was infinite amount of ammunition, weapons, arms, etc. And then you had all the foreign fighters coming in. And so by the time you got to June and the regime fell in April. Mm-hmm. So by the time you got to June, the country was just... It was a yeah. hellish um, war zone of guerrilla fighters, suicide bombers, terrorists, 
truck bombs, um, you know, constant uh, mortar attacks, rocket attacks, car bombs, um, ambushes, um, you know, even crowds that originally, like in April, you could drive through neighborhoods in the city and everybody would wave at you and they'd say, hey, America, good, welcome. You know, by June, these are angry mobs throwing rocks yeah. yeah. and trying, I mean, yeah. and it, so it turned into a hellish environment. And there we were in this big country, bigger than Texas, 26 million people, most of them mm -hmm. very angry at us. And we had a job to do to try to, you know, give them a chance at freedom, democracy, and all those things that we cherish. But it was an uphill battle from day one. Yeah, I was sitting in Afghanistan, um, traveling all over the country as you were in Kuwait preparing to launch the invasion. In fact, I literally watched on the map of units. I saw your unit in Kuwait, and then I watched as you moved into Iraq. And for most of the listeners that have been around for a while, I don't need to tell you what the Iraq war was like. You just heard that from Greg's own ear or own mouth. But that fight in Baghdad, that was about as tough as any fight that we've experienced in decades. And you and your brigade are right in the middle of it. Taking Baghdad International Airport, man, that was just brutal. And I want to say the way that you led those 10,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines as a commander on the battlefield, um, it deserves our respect. So um, just for, for what you did for the Iraqi people, not just what you did for freedom and what you did for the U.S., I have the greatest respect for you, Greg. Well, um, thanks, Jeff. Now, I want to transition a little bit. Okay, so when you were in school, you were a pretty successful athlete. You worked really hard and you were good. Obviously, very, very few people will ever make it to the rank of general officer in the U.S. military, let alone major general. So you are, by every measure, wildly successful in the U.S. Army. But I want people to know you were actually really, really successful in academia, too. So you got a chance to go to MIT, one of the most prestigious schools in America, and do uh, some extra education. Tell everybody very quickly about your success as a student student and, and, and uh, at MIT. Tell them about your degrees, plural. <laughs> so one of the things the Army does really well is if you are showing a lot of promise and potential uh, in, in the Army as a, as a young officer, they will typically offer you the opportunity to go to fully funded graduate school at the best school you can get into. And mm -hmm. for me, that turned out to be MIT. And as an engineer officer, I got to go there, study engineering. And then I also got into studying uh, politics and public policy and leadership. Um, so the Army After Company Command sent me to grad school, 1986 to 1988. And I got in to, to get a master's in civil engineering. But I figured out that I could, through my, you know, if I worked hard and was smart about how I navigated it, I could get a second master's. So I, I did. I got two master's degrees in, in my two years. And the instructors, they loved me. They said they held me up as their model graduate yeah. student for all the civilians. And they said, Greg, you have been an amazing student. We want to have you go for a PhD. And uh, so I told the Army and the Army said, well, we've given you two years if you want to get a PhD, that's fine, but you'll have to do it on your own time. Yeah. So, but the professors at MIT, they said, 
okay, let's do it. And I did an interdisciplinary program between public policy and engineering. Um, and I got the degree like four years later, the doctorate, um, by working, you know, kind of kind of like a night school operation. So it's really amazing that I got two masters and a PhD from MIT, which I could never yeah. have imagined getting into. But I will take a, just a second. I didn't realize it until this past year. I had a condition, a mental condition, not an illness, but a mental condition called hyperthymia, which is a near continual state of mild mania. I had it from high school into my 40s until I went into actual bipolar. So all these things that I accomplished, like as a, at West Point, as a junior officer at MIT and so forth, was in, in large measure, the hyperthymia amplified my talents and boosted my performance. And hyperthymia yeah. is a blessing, except when it goes too high, which it did to me, right. I'm inching up. And then finally, it morphed into, you know, real bipolar disorder and real mania. And then it, it no longer helps you. It, it hurts you. Yeah. Okay, so now we're at the point of the interview that I wanted to get to. I wanted the listener to hear your story and to say, listen to this guy. As an athlete, he's unstoppable. As a warrior and a leader in the U.S. military, he's unstoppable. As a student, he gets a two masters and a PhD from one of the most challenging academic programs at one of the most elite schools in the world. He's an unstoppable athlete. And people at this point should be asking the question, is there anything that Greg can't do? And then you and I got a chance to meet each other just a few weeks ago because through some mutual friends, big shout out right now to Tony Maine, he said, Jeff, you need to hear about General Martin because he has been really open about mental health. And I was like, hold on just a second. First of all, Mental health still has a bit of a stigma. It's a shame that it does, but there's still a bit of a stigma in the United States and unfortunately in the U.S. military about mental health. But leaders almost never talk about mental health. And you've just volunteered to the whole listing audience, hey, I have some mental health issues. And in fact, not only did you... Uh, make that information, uh, make people aware of your mental health challenges, but you're actually putting in a book, right? Like the bipolar general, your forever war with mental illness. Greg, leaders don't talk about this. And when I heard you be this open and this vulnerable about your mental health, it blew me away. So this is where I want to camp for the next few minutes. Can you just explain to people how you can be both a Christian and struggle with genuine mental health issues at the same time. And not only that, but you didn't hide it. You made people aware of it when you didn't have to, when you could try to keep it under wraps. So talk about being bipolar and the depression along with the mania and your willingness to make the world aware of this. Because honestly, I don't know another guy at your level that would be as open as you are about your mental health. Sure. Um, so we, we went all the way through the Iraq war and what the doctors the, on the army medical board and the doctors in the VA, they did the forensics in the kind of background investigation. Mm -hmm. They came to the conclusion that, um, it was in the Iraq war that was the onset of my bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And what they said is that, um, the, you have, I had a genetic 
predisposition for bipolar and that it was the intense stress. And I would add the thrill, the euphoria. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was, I was so high in, in combat that it was the combination of those factors. It triggered this predisposition for bipolar. And I went into a state of mania in combat in Iraq but it was a high performing mania that helped me it enhanced my performance yeah. it amplified my talents you know i had I, my problem solving skills were amazing i didn't need sleep i had unlimited energy enthusiasm i was so joyful and i was praying continuously and you know just lord use me in this role as a brigade commander you know help me to take care of my soldiers help me to solve these problems keep 5th corps and the 101st airborne division mm -hmm. and the 3rd infantry division keep them on the move keep them moving forward which is you know what engineers do and um so the bipolar really helped me a lot during the year in iraq but when we went back to Germany, I spiraled and crashed into a terrible yeah. depression. But yeah. I didn't. But my bipolar, it was unknown, undetected, undiagnosed for the next 11 years. And so what helped me through the depression was the structure of army life. I, I just I wouldn't quit. I couldn't quit. I told the doctors mm -hmm. I thought something was wrong, but they they said, no, you're fine. Um, and uh, but I wasn't fine. I was in I had just finished yeah. my first up down cycle of bipolar and over the next 10 years i got promoted twice i went from one hard job mm -hmm. to an even harder job um, my manic highs went higher my depressive lows went lower until by 2014 11 years after the iraq war 2003 yeah. i went into full-blown mania and i went i lost my mind i went into a state of madness um and you know just over the top off the rails became disruptive and so forth. And so uh, my boss, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Marty Dempsey, who was a mentor, mm -hmm. and I'd worked for him four times, I get a, he, he did a couple of investigations about, because he was getting all these anonymous complaints about me. And mm -hmm. then, so it was July of 2014, I got a call, report to the chairman's office Monday morning. And for those in the audience that aren't aware, that the That's not the phone call you want to get. You don't want it. He's the number one military officer in the yeah. entire United States. And so I go to Dempsey's office and uh, I, I, I was so uh, manic. I thought he was going to give me a promotion or extend me. Um, and I walk in. And I first person I saw was the lawyer. And I said, oh, the lawyer's here. This is not good. Oh, yeah, no promotion today. And, and Dempsey came across the room and he said, Greg, he hugs me, said, I love you like a brother. I give you an A plus for your job leading National Defense University. But your time at NDU is over. You have until 5 p.m. today to resign or I fire you. Wow. And oh, by the way, a lot of people think you have mental health problems. So I'm ordering you to get a mental health exam at Walter Reed. Wow. And he said, any questions? And I said, no, sir. Thank you. Thank you. You know, <laughs> you know God put me at NDU and now he's taking me out. I'm going to do even bigger things, which, you know, now it's, you know, it's uh, eight years later. God has given me bigger things to do yeah. by being a mental health advocate. But I, I then crashed into horrible depression, psychosis. You know, I was out of the job. I pushed into early retirement. Um, I didn't get good treatment in, from, uh, at Walter Reed. They, get, they practiced mm -hmm. what I call um, VIP medicine, very important person medicine. They did it mm -hmm. out of compassion and trying to be nice to me. 
They didn't want to hurt me. They're intimidated that I was a general. They didn't want to delay yeah. my retirement with a potential med board. Um, and so if I had been a private in the shape I was in, I would have gotten better medical care. I mean, they yeah. would have put me inpatient, put me on lithium, you know, maybe done electric shock treatments, um, but I didn't. And so I, I then leave the military, no continuity of care. I get, I go from bad to worse terrible psychosis, delusions, paranoia, uh, visions of my own death, death and dying, morbid, you know, I I wanted to be dead. I mean, I wish it was, it was, I call it bipolar hell. Fortunately though, um, a, a army comrade of mine helped get me into a very good VA. I went to the VA. They asked me, Are you, do you want to kill yourself? No. Do you want to hurt anybody, yourself or others? No. Then they said, do you have any morbid thoughts of death or dying? And I told them about these visions of my own death that mm-hmm. I had. And they said, you need to go to, you need to stay with us for a while. So I did inpatient. Mm-hmm. Best thing I ever did. I mean, I was so thankful wow. that I got inpatient and I embraced the diagnosis Um I was thankful for it because I was working with good doctors and the VA had, I worked with some really good people. And, um, and then I got on the road to recovery and I moved to Florida, bright, sunny, warm. That was a big help. And then I started saying, you know, as I stabilized and I was getting healthier, what's my mission in life? What's my purpose? What am I going to do with myself? And I thought about the great commandment, you know, love your neighbor, love God. Mm -hmm. Um, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I said, how can I do that? How can I put that into effect? And then God kind of spoke to me and said, well, I've given you the gift of bipolar disorder. You're you know, this mighty general, two-star general, and you got fired and you, were, you wanted to die. You're an inpatient. You got shock treatments. You're on lithium. You know, I think I've humbled you pretty well and I spared your life so you didn't die. I want you to go tell your story because there's millions of people, 25% of the people in the world are afflicted in some way with a mental condition. And then everybody else is affected by it as a family member, a friend, or work colleague. So go tell your story. I've given you a story. Go tell it. You know, be bold, be courageous, be strong. And so I started speaking and telling. And what I found, and then I started writing. And what I found is that everybody I tell my story to, They all say, oh, I have a I have a mental health thing, too, or I have a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a friend. And it has just snowballed. And uh, that it's my mission. It's my purpose. It's my calling. It's my you know, it's uh, it's what I I really believe. It's what God wants me to do. I wrote down while you were talking, God gave you the gift, I'm using air quotes here, the gift of bipolar disorder. You got fired from your job and you were at the point that you want to die. And it took all of this happening before you finally got to the point of deciding, I'm going to really get vocal about this, really get vulnerable about this. And I'm going to try to help other people. And Greg, you're on season two of this podcast because to this day, worldwide, not just in America, people don't even say the word depression out loud. And when they do, they whisper the word and they kind of hang their head in shame like there's something wrong with me and I did something bad to have depression. And when we first got a chance to meet each other, I sat back. I don't we I haven't had a chance to say this to you, but after that interview was after we first met each other, I sat back and I was like, look at this guy. 
he is doing right now boldly and vocally for the world to see and hear what people are unwilling to even say out loud or whisper. And, and it occurred to me, man, we have to get better at people being willing and able to talk about their mental health challenges, especially in 2022, after COVID, when mental health problems went up a thousand percent worldwide, but we still don't like to talk about it. So I wanted you to be part of this episode because I wanted people to hear you really are the kind of guy that could do just anything academically, athletically, as a leader in the military, as a combat leader on the battlefield. You were a guy that could do anything and you could have hid this condition and just let everybody think that you were flawless. But instead of doing that, you were willing to, what I just heard you say, listen to God, be open about it and decide I'm going to help other people that are struggling too. So I know there's a mom who's listening to this episode and who's struggling with some mental health issues, but she doesn't want to say it to her husband. She doesn't want to say it to her friends, doesn't want to say it to her children. I know there's a leader who's listening and saying, what happens if my workers, the people that work for me and the people that work with me hear that I have a mental health problem? And they're still really hesitant to say out loud what you've been very willing to say. What advice would you give them? I would say that if you are a family member or a friend or a colleague, um, in, in other words, anybody, understand what the basic symptoms of the common mental illnesses look like. You know, what what are they? What what does what are the symptoms of bipolar? So you're mm -hmm. aware of it. And then if you see that a loved one, a work colleague, a friend are displaying those symptoms, encourage them and hold their hand and take them to go get medical help. Go get help. See a doctor. Um, then if you get diagnosed, if, if they tell you you're OK, then, you know, great. That's fantastic. But if you if you are diagnosed embrace the diagnosis. Don't deny it. Don't battle it, you know, and then work with the doctor and the therapist and the medical professionals. And if they, if they, if they put you on medications and they want to do therapy and stuff like that, do it, work with them, be an interested, yeah. engaged partner, because the medical people will do a better job for you if they know you're interested and committed, then make connections, connect with other people and build hope because no one who with hope has ever died of suicide. Yeah. You have yeah. hope. It gives you energy and the will to continue to fight. And part of the, part of the connection is um, like, I am a big believer in these, some of these groups, like a, a group I love is the international bipolar foundation, ibpf.org. They have tremendous resources and information and, you know, connections. And if you get involved and immerse yourself, you can build knowledge and knowledge is power. So the combination of hope and knowledge is, I mean, that's a winning, that's a winning combination. And, um, and then I would say, don't be, don't be ashamed of this. Don't be stigmatized because, Mental illness or mental con health conditions are just as physiologically real yeah. as cancer, right. diabetes, heart disease. It's just that they're inside the brain, yeah. visible, and the brain is the least understood of all organs. Right. 
I looked at it and said, you know, people ask me, don't you feel embarrassed to like, talk about, you know, depression and bipolar? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I didn't choose it, but it's, it was given to me and it's, it's physically real. It's not due to a lack of courage or character or, or you know, moral failings. It, it happened. And the way I think we should look at it is instead of a stigma, it should be looked at as a heroic cause. And uh, an example would be uh, breast cancer in women. If you yeah. go back to the 1970s, breast cancer was shameful, embarrassing, stigmatized. Yeah. And then First Lady Betty Ford got breast cancer. And she said, mm -hmm. I have breast cancer. Here's the facts. Here's what I'm doing. Fast forward 50 years. Now, those women are seen as heroes fighting a noble cause. Right. And, you know, the NFL wears pink shoes during yeah. breast awareness month and i think it should be the same thing for mental illness people battling it yeah. i'm so glad you said that because i get asked this question from people that are struggling with mental health about whether or not i should get treatment and it just blows my mind i i tell them look if you broke your arm you would go to a doctor and have them fix it if there's something that's not right inside your brain go to a doctor and have it treated why would you think that there's a way that, why would you think about not getting treatment here? So I hope for the listener that may be struggling with some mental health. First, I hope that you're encouraged right now. I hope that you're motivated by what you're hearing from Greg, but I also hope that you're hearing this like, don't put off the treatment. In fact, he used the word, embrace it, embrace the diagnosis, embrace the treatment and embrace it with hope because I think you can get better but that's if you're willing to recognize, I got something wrong. I didn't do anything bad. I just have something that's wrong in my brain and I need to get some mental health professionals to help treat it. Um, if, if nothing else, if the listeners hear nothing else from this entire broadcast today, I hope they're hearing from you the willingness to say the word mental health problems and to get the treatment because that as, as long as we're as long as we continue to whisper about it or don't say it at all, things don't change. It's when people like you get bold and vulnerable with it that others step up and get the help that they need too. You've got a book that's coming out soon um, called The Bipolar General. Any idea when this is going to be released and how does the listener get a copy? I think it's going to come out in 2023. Um, it's right, right. at an agent who's working with publishers. And so I've got to get a publisher to, to take it and then, and then do it. But I, I'm hope, yeah. hope in a year, it's, it's a pretty slow process getting a book published, but yeah. um, so yeah, that's my hope. And, and then how to get it. Um, I've got a website that it'll definitely be easy to, you know, clear on that, but it's www.generalgreg, two G's on the end of Greg, martin.com. And, and that's got a lot of information. And, um, and then once it gets out, it'll be well publicized by the publisher. Yeah. When uh, this episode goes live, we're going to put a link to your website so that people can learn more about you. But there's one question that I want to start asking every guest on season two. And that is um, just for people to learn something about you as a person and as a man, Hypothetical fun fact about you. Let's say that you had an hour in your schedule with no responsibilities, no work that needed to get done. Family's not asking for any of your time. It is truly a free hour. You could do with it whatever you wanted to do. What would you do with that one hour of free time in your schedule? 
I would get together with my wonderful, energetic friends in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and we would dance. That's yeah. um, my favorite pastime. And, and I wasn't a dancer before, but it's so much fun and it's good fitness and it's with friends. And that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. An hour of dancing with friends sounds like a dream for most of us that have these really busy lives. I'm hoping that you get a chance to spend an hour dancing with your friends in Cocoa Beach, Florida sometime soon. Thank you. Hey, it has been an honor, General Martin, to be uh, to have you on this broadcast. And again, not just for the service to your country, I want to say thank you, but more than anything, thank you for being bold enough and vulnerable enough that you're willing to share openly about your mental health problems. And I hope people are learning from you today and they're willing to be open and, and vulnerable about their mental health uh, conditions as well. Well, thanks. Thank you, Jeff. This has been really an honor and a privilege. And you, you've said so many really um, on-target things. And one of them is that, you know, mental health, mental illness, it can be devastating. It can, be, can destroy yeah. lives. And that's the bad news. The good news is that if diagnosed, and then if you do the things that the doctors say, and you live a healthy life, you can live a perfectly healthy, happy, yeah. successful life. So it can be extremely bad or it can be extremely good. And really the choice is ours to make. Yeah, there you have it. That is the perfect way to end this episode. If you're struggling, go get help. And how you handle that help can be the difference between an extremely difficult or a very normal and a very healthy life going forward. Thanks again for being with me today. My pleasure. Hey, everybody, I want to put a challenge in front of you. As I was listening to Greg talk, I thought, hey, here's something that I'm going to do this week. I'm going to take the time to go learn some of the signs and symptoms of mental health challenges. The truth is, if it wasn't for a friend of his and a mentor in the Army, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, helping him get the mental health care that he got, Greg wouldn't be where he is today. Somebody recognized that he needs help. And I wanna place this challenge in front of you. Would you just go learn a few of the basic signs and symptoms of mental health? Not because you think there's something wrong with you, but perhaps so that you can help a friend or a family member when you notice something that maybe they don't even notice. Will you take that challenge this week and go learn some of the basic signs and symptoms of mental health? This guy's amazing. And I wanna thank you for joining me for this episode of Unbeatable. Look, I would love for you to become part of the Unbeatable Army. This group of people connected together and staying in contact with each other, staying in contact with the content from the Unbeatable podcast. If you want to become part of the Unbeatable Army, all you got to do is simply go to unbeatablearmy.com. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us just about everywhere. Look for at Unbeatable Podcast, or why don't you go ahead and subscribe so that the next episode of Unbeatable is automatically downloaded for you on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for being with me while we talked to Greg Martin. I'll see you next week on Unbeatable. Unbeatable.